I wanted to talk to you, this might go on a few weeks, about leadership. Everybody in this room is a leader. Everybody in this room is a leader. You may not have the gift of leadership. You may not be in an official position of influence, but you do influence other people, right? Everybody in this room influences other people in one way or another. And leadership is essentially learning how to utilize that influence. We all agree with that? There is no such thing as a great organization without good leaders. And leaders basically trigger the performance of other people. Now, we could probably all share, if I went around to each of us, how we have been profoundly influenced by other leaders, whether it was for the positive or even for the negative. Great leaders certainly earn the trust of those that they are to serve, and they invest in equipping them, training them to attain what otherwise they could not attain. Now, you may be hard-pressed to find in the Bible somebody who was a better leader outside of Jesus than the person of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is probably my favorite, certainly Old Testament book, and it was written around four 25 BC, and it chronicles to us the story of a man that bears the book's name, who was leading his people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, the walls were destroyed by the Babylonians who overtook the whole city in 587 BC. The Babylonians and the Assyrians who ruled before them were basically brutal upon those cultures or those cities that they conquered. And they essentially stripped the Jews from their civil and religious activities. Now, even though many of them went into captivity in Babylon, some were left behind. They had a sacrificial system that was in ruins, a temple that was in ruins, and the wall which was basically a symbol of safety that was also in ruins. Listen to this. This was a result of the Babylonian takeover uh, led by Nebuchadnezzar in 2 Chronicles 36. It says this, And all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. And burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. So the civil and religious life of Jerusalem was destroyed. It was in ruins. And the Israelites were essentially melding in with these other cultures. And you know what that meant? That meant amalgamating idol worship intermarrying with non-believers, basically a generally moral, decadent life. And it was under Cyrus that the Medes and the Persians overtook Babylon in 539 BC. And Cyrus basically began a significant policy change to these captured nations, including the Jews. He allowed them to return to their homeland. The interesting thing is that while Cyrus opened the door to return to Jerusalem, as I mentioned before, many of these Jews chose to stay in Babylon, in captivity essentially, because that was what they were used to. 
That's what they were comfortable with. I mean, compared to the ruins of Judah, Babylon seemed appetizing. Now, Cyrus, even though he was an idol worshiper, was deemed as a friend to the Jews. And each subsequent Persian king, even though carrying out the same policy by name, were basically less and less sympathetic to the Jews. Three kings followed Cyrus until we end up with Artaxerxes here in Nehemiah some 100 years later. So Nehemiah returns to the city to rebuild the walls and to help in the spiritual uplift and rewarding of the life of his people. Now, we know that the book of Ezra is essentially devoted to the rebuilding of the temple, and the book of Nehemiah is dedicated to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know much about Nehemiah except for what is written in this book that bears his name. We know that he was a cupbearer to the king, and the cupbearer essentially was the first to taste the food and the drink of the king. And that way, if anybody was trying to poison him, the cupbearer got it first. So you had to learn to trust the cupbearer. And as a result, there was great trust between the king and Nehemiah, but there was also great responsibility given to Nehemiah to rule as a governor over the part of the kingdom because he had exhibited great leadership skills. In fact, if you just think about it, they basically rebuilt this wall in two months. And this was a crew of beleaguered, discouraged people that he bandied together. It would take two months in Springfield just to get your building permit, all right? And we're talking about doing it not with all the machinery that we enjoy today. And the wall, by the way, was about 16 feet thick. And so we see not only incredible leadership, but we see impeccable character and integrity as he stands up for the holiness of God throughout this book. It's really quite amazing how he led not only them to rebuild the wall, but a moral reform in a people who were greatly in need of a holy standard. God, give us more Nehemiahs today in this country. Now, one of the impressive things about Nehemiah was how he was able to face and define reality or what is. He did not shy away from bad news. He did not live in denial of the true state of things. Near the beginning of the book, we read this. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He not only saw the physical state of things, he recognized that there was opposition, and usually with opposition, there comes a lot of discouragement. And that's what these people experienced. You know, perhaps right here, I need to encourage all of us leaders, from elders to ministry leaders, small group leaders, staff members at CCC, one of your primary tasks is to define reality. To face the truth of what is. 
to gather information so that you are looking at the facts. We know that Nehemiah actually surveyed the walls and got first-hand knowledge by going out at night. He had to do that because of all the enemies. If he went during the day, he would be accosted. We read this. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one that my God had put what my God had put into my heart for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one upon which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Well, why had he not told them? Because he first wanted to understand the situation. He first had to define reality. He had to face the facts of what the true state of things are. And one of the biggest problems for leaders is their unwillingness to do this. Their unwillingness to define reality accurately. And what happens is that when you have leaders like this, they're, they're unwilling to face the, organiza- the, the, the failures of the organization because it's, it might be a reflection upon them. And human nature... Being what it is, we complain, we blame, right? We make excuses. But good leaders accept responsibility, define reality, make a plan to mobilize people to accomplish the goal that they set. And speaking to one man recently about his household that was in a crisis mode, this is where we had to start. I said, what? is the problem? What is the reality of the situation? What is it that you can control and what you cannot? How did you contribute to the problems in this marriage? And what can you do to make it healthy? Seems simple. But see, those confessions about our failures, that implies we have to be humble and honest. And that does not come easy especially when we're operating in the flesh, right? That's in short supply. And when leaders cannot define reality accurately, they're often going to blame others in the organization. Now, it's not that every single problem is related directly to the leader, but good leaders are quick to see the part that they play in making changes within the organization. And I think that when we define reality accurately, whether it's in a home, whether it's on the job, whether it's in ministry, we gain trust of those that we serve. People know that you're not giving them a a sales job or trying to whitewash something. And when a good leader defines reality, the probability is much greater than that the goals that they set are going to actually address the core issues. Part of reality is facing even our own leadership shortcomings, right? 
Years ago, our ministry leaders had a retreat in Branson, and uh, we were discussing the finer points of how you know, we can improve the ministry of Christ Community Church. And I described in detail what I deemed was one of my biggest mistakes that I'd made in ministry. And with perfect timing and in the spirit of male jocular humor, Jerry Pollack says, oh, Kevin, that was not your biggest mistake. (laughs) The whole room could not stop laughing. It took a while to kind of get everybody back on board. Well, I would like to expand on Jerry's thought and actually give you five of my worst mistakes as a leader. Now, Obviously, these are not exhaustive, okay? The series cannot run over a year, so I'm going to stop with just these five, all right? Five of my worst mistakes as a leader. Now, listen, mistakes can either kill our leadership and cause us to slink back into the stands, or it can cause us to identify those things that we need to grow in, and we attack those things as such. So I'd like to share with you some of these failures. Now listen, here's a fact. I'm still standing here over 25 years later. That should be a sign that, you know, we can survive our failures and mistakes. Of course, many of you, when I'm done with this, are probably thinking, how in the world did that guy even get this job? And of course, there was a period that I wondered that as well. And in addition, the failures do not define us as leaders. Remember, we're all leaders. We all are influencers. The failures do not define who we are as people or as leaders. That's part of the problem that keeps us frozen because we can't get past some failure or mistake that we've made. We keep replaying it and replaying it to where you think, oh yeah, I'm so-and-so, the crummy leader, right? Number one. Now, these are things that I believed or did. Uh, You can get along on natural ability and do what is expedient and comfortable. You can get along on natural ability and do what is expedient and comfortable. I want to tell you something about my undergraduate years in college. I had a great time in college. I played basketball as much as possible. I had three jobs. I had a very active social life to where my friends and I would go and explore Chicago, the schools in the middle of Chicago. We explored Chicago any time I got. I was also president of the men's choir there at Moody. The problem was there was a certain GPA that one had to uphold if they were going to be in a leadership position. And studying in my undergraduate years was never a priority. Never all that important to me. And as a result, I was stripped of my responsibilities. Now, the embarrassment of losing that job was only matched by my blaming the authority who took that job away from me. And I eventually had to take responsibility for squandering the opportunity of leadership and not applying myself and not being disciplined enough to say no to all the fun things and yes to the things that had to be done. I was opting for easy and comfortable. In second, or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, the Apostle Paul talks about how he runs 
the race of life to what? To win. And part of the quotient in winning was what he calls self-discipline, self-control. And we all have to demonstrate that in order to lead. We could say this, that leadership is not a right. Leadership is not something that any of us, in terms of a position, are entitled to, but something we earn. We earn the trust of the people that we are to lead by our example. Secondly, you can achieve success without balance. There's another faux pas. You can achieve success without balance. When Janet and I moved to Springfield, uh, I was managing a business. I was opening up a business. I had worked for this company in Denver, and they had moved us here in 1984. I was working 60 to 70 hours a week while having four children, three and under. My priority for a period of time in this was success. This company had hung, and it wasn't their fault, had hung a carrot out in front of me, these dollar signs figures, and man, in my mid-20s, I went after that gung-ho, all guns blazing, and left my family in the dust. I lost balance and perspective, and a lesser woman would have probably said, you know what, I did not sign up for this. A husband or father needs to know how to spell love. And this is how you spell it. T-I-M-E. To which I was unwilling to give. And I had to learn the lesson a hard way by going through a crisis mode. You see, God's definition of success includes healthy relationships. Urban Meyer coached the University of Florida to two national titles in football. And after the 2009 championship, the confetti is still falling. His players are jubilant in celebrating. And instead of enjoying the celebration, being part of the celebration, his, his drive for success, his drive for perfection led him to his, to his office while all this is going on, to start emailing recruits for the next season. One of his assistant coaches came in and said, Urban, what are you doing in here instead of enjoying the celebration? And he told him, he goes, oh, I'll be in there later. Well, he never made it. He stayed in there until everything was over. And his lost perspective created so much stress, his drive for perfection created so much stress that he began to develop health problems. He thought he was having a a heart attack, but the stress was like a pressure upon his chest and he had to resign and stay away from coaching for a year just to gain perspective. I look across this audience and we are a church full of 20 or 30-somethings. And you've got that warrior spirit, that drive, and man, you are going for it. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But I implore you to manage your relationships well and to make that a priority. You know, success by itself is a real bummer when you have no one to share it with or those closest to you resent it. 
It's really hard to enjoy at that point. Here's one of my other terrible mistakes. You can keep everyone happy, especially those who champion discontent. You can keep everyone happy, especially those who champion discontent. There's a rule of leadership, 10, 80, 10. Uh, Most organizations have 10% of their people that are hard drivers, are self-disciplined, high achievement. They epitomize discipline and dedication. And it's usually on the back of these 10% that most that gets done gets done, at least in terms of leadership. And then there's the 80%. The 80% are good people, but these 80%ers are not the same as the 10%ers. They're not the, the high-achieving people. They're, they're reliable. You can count on them. They're in the trenches. In fact, good leaders will find a way to get the 80%ers into that upper 10%. And then you have the last 10% that are always discontent, they are uninterested, they are uninterested in improving, and they are attitude killers. Now, I used to think that I could change that 10%. I used to spend a lot of time chasing after those 10%. And it was probably pride on my part that I thought I had the persuasive power to do so. And you know what? It was a waste of time. And I did little good. It's not that such people are worthless. I'm not saying that at all. But that a leader's time has to be primarily spent with those who are in the game and are teachable, right? I mean, a quarterback cannot jump into the stands and confront those people that are booing him and expect to turn them into great fans. That's probably not going to happen. And isn't it true that there are usually issues that run much deeper than what we know when people wear discontentedness as a badge? Why waste a large portion of your time on people who are not interested. It makes no sense. And the good news is that every leader has a choice. Spend your time with those who want to be led and equipped. That was a good lesson for me. Here's another thing I did wrong. No one can do it better than me. No one can do it better than me. You should think that. And then it dawned on me that leadership is not about me. Leadership is about those that I serve. It's about developing them, and that means giving them responsibilities and the authority to make decisions and to watch them grow. You know, before we acquired this facility, uh, we had three land or building purchases that we failed to acquire, and it seemed like God, in the very last second, took it from us. In one case, uh, I had a check in hand and went to the real estate agent and he said, sorry, somebody this morning just got this. In another case, and I, now remember all the work that you have to go through to get the body's approval to do things like this, right? So, you know, you have of weeks and weeks of work and trying to get everybody on the same page. In another, we were going to buy a piece of property right at the corner of Evans and 65. In fact, we passed up on the property where James River built originally. 
We could have had that property. Instead, we went, we wanted to go on the corner of 65 and Evans, got it all approved, called the bank and said, hey, I'd like to come down and get that. He goes, dude, well, he didn't say dude. He said, Kevin, um, <laughs> somebody bought this this morning. Really? And that happened on another case with an actual church building. Now, there was something that was similar to all three of those instances. And I'm not saying that it was because of this, but it, uh, it, it's curious to me that this was something that was similar to all of them. And that is that I did the majority of the work in all three of these failed acquisitions. The prospecting, the real estate dealing, the financing, the pitching the project to the church, and I learned quickly that I could not do it all, beside the fact that I just wasn't very good at it. And I finally wised up and let people who, who could do the jobs much better than me and just let them do it. You know what you're enjoying here in, in, in this facility was a result of a team of people that found this property of a team of people, different people, who put together the financing, of a person who pitched the property to the church and gave them weekly updates, of a team of people, different people, who raised the money in the church that was necessary to acquire the financing, of another person who headed up the construction of this facility. The smartest thing I did was to get out of the way and let these people do their job. They were willing, they were able, and we delegated it to them, and look what God did. Good leaders learn to delegate and to give people whatever tools, whatever freedom to equip them to do the job that you're asking them to do. And a healthy uh, organization, by the way, has a system, a healthy church has a system to train people as well. Lastly, goodwill and hard work make up for a weak inner world. This is what I thought. Good work, or goodwill and hard work can make up for a weak inner world. You know, in the early years of me being a pastor, and I, I can look back on it now with great, much greater clarity. Not perfect clarity, but much greater understanding. I was so easily manipulated. Wasn't anybody else's fault? but mine. But I was. Uh, there was an elder, no longer goes here, who decades ago uh, wanted me to sit when I preached. Now look at me, I'm just now, is that a, some kind of a automatic thing? I just uh, wanted me to wear a tie. Didn't want me to wear jeans. Uh, wanted me to stop being so excited when I preached with a shrill voice. Said these things. I needed to speak in more monotone, Okay. And you know what? I obliged him. Because I thought that was the thing I should be doing. You know, submitting to the whim, obliging everybody, especially a church board. It wasn't until I talked to some pastor friends of mine and I talked with our former pastor here who extended great grace at a particular moment when I really needed it. And I was able to see that I was just like King Saul, who was reluctant to lead. Now, that elder didn't make me that way. That elder only revealed what was on the inside. 
And I had to take responsibility for that. And it was only after dealing with what was on the inside that pressure from the outside did not toss me to and fro. No amount of goodwill or hard work can make up for the crap that's going on in your heart that's not right, for the unhealthiness. In Christ, I find rest, I find strength, I find security, and I can lay upon him all of my weaknesses. You know what? You know what's cool about this? And now problems, weaknesses that come, these are opportunities now where I can operate in the strength of Christ. Christ is our life as leaders. And so every Christian leader, parent, whatever you do, all right, we don't have to be afraid of failures. We don't have to be afraid of weaknesses. When I am weak, then I am what? Then I am strong. I learned just as God's tap on the shoulder to remind me, hey, you can't do this on your own, but I've got your back. Depend upon the strength that I have in the indwelling Christ and watch God do his work. But that comes with some brutal honesty and humility. You know, we're going to make mistakes as leaders, are we not? Every one of us will. We make mistakes as parents, and the best thing that you can do is just be honest with the people you lead about that. Be brutally honest. You not only earn their trust, but you model for them how to approach these weaknesses that we all have to deal with. And allow the Holy Spirit then to shine light on how that weakness can be turned to something for good. I'm not after perfection. I'm just after being honest and vulnerable before God, which then allows us to be honest with other people. And that's the best we can do. And I'm going to leave the results to God in the process, right? Right? So how do you measure success? Is it by the numbers, the, the budget, the number of people? How about our relationship with God? How about our relationship with one another? That would be the place I think we should start. Let's pray.